Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through to 8. And that can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1233. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I wonder who you think was the most influential religious figure of the 20th century. I want to make a pitch for suggesting that it wasn't Pope John Paul II, or Billy Graham, but that it was in fact Judy Garland. Now, you weren't expecting that. Let me explain. The 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz, was written to be, uh, was first published in uh, 1910 by L. Frank Baum uh, as a modern fairy tale made by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer into this sort of iconic film uh, at, at, at the sort of turning point of the century. But it is not straightforwardly an allegory, but it is a story with a message, with a deeply 20th century religious message. So Bam himself, who wrote the book, was a theosophist. That doesn't matter too much exactly what theosophy was. It was following the teachings of a 19th century thinker called Madame Blavatsky, and the idea was that... uh, As a society, they would seek after truth and find the truth that underlay all of the world's religions. 
And the Wizard of Oz is filled with the imagery and the thought world of theosophy. And you don't actually have to think too hard about it to know the message you're being given in the story of the Wizard of Oz. So see if you can remember what happens. You have Dorothy, a a, a girl far from home, trying to find her way back to Kansas. Uh, And on her journey, she's told she must follow the yellow brick road to reach Oz, the great and powerful wizard. And he will be able to help her. And on her journey, she picks up some friends, a a cowardly lion who, who is lacking courage and wants to go and see the wizard in order to receive the courage that he lacks. He cannot be the lion that he is meant to be because he doesn't have that courage. But if he can just see Oz, the great and powerful, then perhaps that missing part of him can be restored. The tin man, if he only had a heart. The scarecrow, if I only had a brain. Uh, And yet, as they go on their journey with Dorothy, what do they discover? Those things are inside them all along. And finally, Dorothy reaches Oz and the place where the great wizard is manifest. And what does she discover? Despite entreaties to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, she peels back the curtain and discovers that all that is there is someone playing a trick. Pressing buttons to make flames appear, looking like he has great power, but actually he's just a tiny, pathetic little man. He can't help her. The power resides within her. If she just thinks hard enough about how there is no place like home, she can get home all by herself. The wizard is just a projection. He's not real. Don't you think that actually really quite well sums up the way that Western culture, at least, has come to think about religious things? The truth lies within. What really matters is inside you. And in many ways, religion, if you peel back the curtain, is just a way of helping you to discover that. It's just a way of helping you to find what's inside you. It's it's a mirage. It looks impressive. God looks impressive, but actually he's not real. He's a way of finding the riches that lie within you, the deep spiritual truths that can only be found by digging deep down. Now, in one sense, the story of the Wizard of Oz is very like the book of Revelation. It's just that it's the mirror image of it. So, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, and that is uh, a translation of the Greek word apocalypse, as so many of our very learned um, first-line writers uh, pointed out. Uh, and um, it's from that word apocalypse that we have derived, because... The book of Revelation speaks of the things to come at the end of history as we know it. That word apocalypse has come to be a bit twisted in our own imagination so that it, it, you hear the word apocalypse and you think the great catastrophe that will end civilization. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. It actually means this kind of drawing back of the curtain so that unseen realities are revealed. In other words, this is 
the revelation by which Jesus will show you what reality is actually like. It is a revelation both of and from the God who is at the heart of everything. And what the book of Revelation shows us is that the truth is not to be found by digging deep down into ourselves, that the truest reality, true knowledge is found in knowing the God who is behind the curtain, if you like, the God you cannot see with your eyes or touch with your hands, but who is at the centre of everything. Now, I don't know how you feel about coming to a book like Revelation. Uh, It feels, I think, strange. It's got some very odd kind of picture language in it. Uh, it, It's been interpreted by so many different people to mean so many different things. And perhaps it's one of those things that you've put in a drawer labeled too difficult. And that if you follow a Bible reading plan through the year, it may be that when you get to the book of Revelation, you start scratching your head uh, and eventually the Bible stays closed on the nightstand. But I want to suggest that that actually it's not quite so bad as that. In fact, it is wonderful. It is the capstone to God's revelation of himself. Uh, And one of the ways that it works like that, I think, is that if you think of the book of Revelation as being like the last chapter of a thriller or of a crime novel, um, then uh, that is quite I think, quite a helpful sort of metaphor for the way the book works. Because if you, if you read an Agatha Christie or something like that, there are all these clues she's laid all the way through. And if Agatha Christie has done her job properly, and let's face it, generally she did, you don't see how all of those threads weave together to form a tapestry uh, until the very last chapter. And then suddenly Hercule Poirot or whoever uh, just draws those threads out and you see, oh, was obvious all the way through. The book of Revelation is like that in that it takes imagery from the Old Testament of the Bible and applies it to Jesus Christ and to his church in such a way that if you read it, understanding what the Old Testament text is saying and pointing to, the book of Revelation should have you going, oh, I see. Oh, it makes sense. In that sense, it's a sort of capstone to the story that weaves its way all the way through the Bible. So to understand it, you have to be tuned in to the Old Testament. Uh, and so for, for me and Ben and others who will who, be preaching on Revelation in these next few weeks, part of our task is to say, look, this is what he's referring to. This is the... This is the symbolism that he's drawing on. This is, these are the stories that he's calling your mind back to. So in many ways, the best thing you can do to understand the book of Revelation for yourself is to read the Old Testament of the Bible and memorize it all. No problem. I suppose that's uh, why you pay us. Um, so as we go through, um, we'll see um, uh, some of the allusions, the references back to the Old Testament. We'll have to skip over others. Initially, when I, when I sort of you know, planned out this series in Revelation, I thought chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, well, that'll be easy. I'll have that one. There's not too much to do. It's pretty simple. Uh, as I have worked away at it, I've realised I've bitten off much more than I can chew. And so there's lots that I just 
would love to say something to you about, but we don't, we don't have time. So I'm just going to pick out some edited highlights as we go through these first eight verses. It will really help if you can keep it open uh, in front of you in your Bible. Just in case you don't have it open, let me give you a page number. It is page 1,233. So let's look at it together. This is the revelation that God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. In other words, I think this is a book that is designed to help you to understand history. Now, I don't mean by that that it's supposed to help you to understand individual events or to be able to point to something that's happening in the world and and go, oh, look, there it is. I know that that's how a lot of people have interpreted In fact, in the 19th century, it was a huge uh, way of uh, interpreting Revelation. Uh, because of the events of the French Revolution and then the rise of Napoleon, suddenly everyone thought the end of the world had come. Uh, and you can search for words like millennium and antichrist. In, um, there's a fantastic tool uh, that Google have produced called Ngrams that allows you to go back uh, and to search for words and how often they appear in, in Western literature. It's absolutely insane that you can do that, but you can. Uh, and, and the extraordinary thing is that uh, after the rise uh, of Napoleon and then again with various other things, words like antichrist and millennium just, <clears throat> they're everywhere. It's what everyone's thinking about. It's no coincidence that lots of sort of splinter sects from Christianity form at that time because they believed that Jesus was going to return within a few years. So uh, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the list goes on and on and on of people who thought, ah, look, if we read Revelation right, we can actually understand what's going on in the newspaper. Uh, I did my PhD on, on one of these people, uh, and there's one account of him sitting down and reading the paper and saying, what's in the paper cannot be true, because it would mean that this way of understanding the book of Revelation doesn't work. Okay, So that's a kind of backwards way uh, of reading the book. I think instead what we should be doing is looking at it and seeing how does it reveal Jesus to us, and how history revolves around him, how he's the beginning and the end of it, how he set everything going uh, and how history is heading towards the point where he will be utterly vindicated and when every eye will see that he truly is the Lord. So it's designed to help us to understand history, but history in the sort of wide angle sense of what's history actually about. So, this is to help us to understand what is, uh, what is coming, what, what, what history is about. Uh, and um, there's this sort of extraordinary, from verses uh, 2 to 3, uh, this kind of chain of uh, communication. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him by God his Father. Uh, and uh, he's given it to an angel, and the angel's given it to John, and John's written it down. And now someone's reading it to you, says John, and you're hearing it. And I think the point is, this is an unbroken chain of communication from God himself. And so you're not missing out if you were to remove. So the fact that John got it from the angel, well, the angel got it from Jesus and Jesus got it from his father. And you're getting it from John, but that's fine. And so the one, Charlie today, who reads this aloud in the assembly is blessed because they're reading the words of God himself. And the ones who hear are blessed because they're hearing the words of God himself. 
Although it's a very particular kind of hearing, isn't it? And we'll come back to this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. Because the time is near. This matters. This has more significance in your life, believe it or not, than anything else you'll ever hear. The words of the living God. So let's get on with it. John 2, seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, there are actually much more than seven churches in the province of Asia. It's a sort of uh, one end of uh, Turkey in, in, in kind of modern currency. And John's on a little island just off the coast in the Dodecanese, uh, and um, he is uh, in prison, effectively. He's, he's probably working in the mines uh, on that island. He's been sent, uh, and you can see that in verse 9, he's been sent into exile on this island of Patmos, just off the coast of Asia Minor. Uh, and uh, these seven churches uh, are, are kind of hubs. They're actually the, the great postal hubs of that region. So John, it's, it's like John sends the letter to these seven churches. And from there, it is to go out uh, to the whole of Asia Minor. Uh, the significance of the seven churches we'll see more uh, next uh, week and in the weeks to come as we actually read individual letters written to each church. But also the number seven is really important in the book of Revelation. Numbers matter to John, and seven is a number of completeness. So as well as being a, a, a letter to specific situations, as we'll see in the next three, cha- next three chapters, there's also a sense in which this is a letter to the whole world, to the whole of the church. And what does God say to his church? Grace and peace to you grace, God's undeserved favour, given freely, not in response to anything you've given him, but just poured out. Grace and peace. A relationship with God that flows from him and is one marked by peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but the idea of Shalom, of well-being, of of all being as it should be. God gives that to his church and says, peace be with you. And who is this God who gives grace and peace to his people? Him who is and who was and who is to come. The God who pervades all of history, but it's more than that. Do you see the... There's something strange about the way John's written that. I wonder if you notice what it is. Do you see? Who is and who was and who is to come. That's not the order. You'd normally put something like that in, is it? Uh, And in fact, hymn writers drawing on this often correct John's uh, thing. They put who was and is and is to come. But that's not what John writes. Why? Well, this is actually not the first... uh, sort of allusion to the Old Testament you find in Revelation chapter 1. It's the first we're going to look at. Uh, And it comes from Exodus chapter 3. If you'd like to flick there with me, uh, that would be great. Um, Because uh, John is pointing us to something very, very specific. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to give you a page number in a second, but it's in the 60s. It's page 59. Um, So... If you don't know the book of Exodus, 
let me give you the 30-second praise God has called a special people to himself and he has made a promise to them that he will give them a land, that he will bless them, they'll be in relationship with him and that they will be a blessing to the whole world. And at the beginning of Exodus, you find them in exile in Egypt, treated as slaves by Pharaoh. And the people are crying out to God and God hears and he says to a man named Moses, I want you to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And what does Moses say to the God who says that to him? He says, who am I? This is verse 11, so we are on page 60 now. It's right after all. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. You see, Moses is asking the wrong question. He's saying, well, what what is it about me that is going to make Pharaoh uh, set the people free? And God says, come on, Moses, that's not the best question to ask, is it? And so then Moses asks another question. He says, well, suppose I go, this is verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And the Greek translation of that is exactly what John renders as who is. It's literally the being one. The one whose existence is necessary. Who has no beginning and no end. Who has no maker. Who relies on nothing outside of himself. Many of you will perhaps know what comes immediately before that encounter between God and Moses. Moses comes to a bush in the desert and it is burning, but it is not consumed. The bush is on fire and yet it's not burning. What's going on? You see, God is the fire that needs no fuel. God doesn't need anything from the outside. He is totally self-existent, self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He is the basis of all reality. All things come from him. He doesn't need anything. He is perfect and good and mighty and glorious. And you can never even begin to imagine the greatness and the glory that this God, just by being who he is, possesses. That's why John starts, who is and who was and who is to come. So there he is all the way through history, but he lives and exists outside of history. He is beyond it. Now he then goes on to say, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, it, This is perhaps the most complete statement of the Trinity in the whole of the New Testament. I'm just going to skip over it because we just don't have time. But it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus the Son. 
Perhaps we have something in the uh, notes for home group uh, to reflect on that a bit more. But look at what he says about Jesus. He points to three events in Jesus' life. He's the faithful witness, which in the New Testament refers to Jesus testifying about who he was in front of Pontius Pilate, saying, yes, as as you say it is, I am the king. And his his witness is literally his martyrdom. He is the martyr. The one killed for the truth. It's a reference to his death. He was killed. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now think about that. He's beaten death. He's come back from the grave. But his coming out of the grave means that others will too. He's the firstborn. And because of him, others too will come back from the dead. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that's pointing to his ascension, to the throne, to the right hand of the Father. We'll think about that a little bit more in a second. But as John speaks of God in his glory and in his mysterious Trinitarian oneness, he just can't help himself but pray and praise. So what comes next? In verse 6, but this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. His death wasn't just something that happened, it had a purpose. It was to free us from our sin, from our alienation from God, from the things that we have done and said and thought that make us unfit for the kingdom of God. He loves us. He has freed us by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. He just can't help himself but to pray glory to that Jesus. I mean, think about it. The God who just is found a way to die. The God who cannot not be died. Why? Who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. At the heart of reality stands that extraordinary mystery that everything depends on him and yet he was willing to die for you. And after bursting out in praise, John takes us back into the Old Testament again to two places. First of all to Daniel chapter 7 and then uh, to Zechariah chapter 12. So... um, we have no time to, to look at these in detail, but look at page 893, if you would. Daniel has a dream. It's a, a vision, much like some of the visions that John has. My vision at night, he says, chapter 7, verse 2. But in his vision, he sees these terrifying beasts coming out of the ocean. Uh, and as his dream is explained to him, God says, those beasts represent earthly kingdoms. And and the fact that they're beasts, that they're kind of wild, ravening animals, is a way of pointing to the fact that, you know, the human worship of power is so destructive. And we see that, don't we, in the world around us right at the moment. That power-crazed kingdoms are destructive and brutal. They're less human than they are animalistic. And he sees these beasts coming out of the ocean, uh, and then... 
there's this vision of God. The Ancient of Days took his seat, uh, and it's glorious. And then as he continues to watch, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John says, let me peel back the curtain for you. Let me show you what reality looks like. Reality is Jesus being led into his Father's presence to receive all power and authority forever and ever over everyone. And that is wonderful because it's going to take away this sort of power-crazed, blood-soaked sort of rule as exercised by megalomaniacal humans and replace it with the self-giving, other-person-centered love that you see in the one who gave himself for his people. John says, this is reality. Jesus is on his throne. He is the king. Everyone will answer to him. And so he then moves on to pointing us to Zechariah chapter 12 when he says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. It it sounds bad, doesn't it? Everyone's going to see him, even those who pierced him, and everyone will mourn. But if you turn to Zechariah, you can turn to Zechariah if you want, but you'll have trouble finding it. Uh, If you turn to Zechariah chapter 12, it's on page 957. God talks about the triumph of of Israel and and how Jerusalem is going to be vindicated. And then this is what he says, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then if you flick flick your eyes down to chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Far from the point being that, you know, Jesus is going to get his own back, you pierced him, well, you're going to mourn. Actually, what John is saying is, it's not just going to be for the Jewish people, but for the peoples of every nation. That they will join in in the experience of forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. Now, there is much talk of judgment in the book of Revelation. It's just not what's here. The point here is that Jesus is drawing people from every nation to himself. He is the king. That is the story of history. The gracious God gathering people back to himself. What does that mean for us? What kind of people should we be? Very quickly, three things. We should be humble people. It's not that we're the goodies who've chosen the winning side. It's that we're people who've been set free from our sin at the cost of the blood of God himself. We should be humble. But he says he did that to make us a kingdom and priests. Well, a kingdom is a a group of people that submit to the rule of their king. Hear this prophecy, take its words to heart, says God. He is your king. 
for us as individuals and for us as a church, the calling on us is to live as if he really is the king, to obey him, to follow his paths, to submit ourselves to him, to accept that he truly is the king, that what he has to say to us really is the final word in our lives. And when you recognize that human rule and human power left to itself is animalistic, power-crazed, blood-soaked, but that his doesn't shed others' blood but his own, that love is at the heart, and because God is Trinity, love is at the heart of who God is, love is at the heart of his reign. That is a glorious thing and a good thing. And even though our instincts often will take us away from what Jesus says should go on in our lives, oh, the blessings that come as you submit to his loving and gracious rule. So we should be humble people. We should be obedient people. And then finally, we should be worshipping people. See how John can't help himself but burst out in praise as he thinks about who God is and what he has done for us. Notice what he says. We're a kingdom and priests. What do priests do? Priests worship. They participate in fellowship with God. They pray. They enter the presence of the Almighty. They have an And in ancient Israel, the priests were the only people who ever had unmediated access to God. And John says, we're a kingdom of priests. Every single one of us. You know, according to, you know, the language of of the law of the land, I'm a priest and, and, and most of you aren't priests. But actually, according to the language of Revelation, we're all priests. We're a kingdom and priests. We are to be a worshipping people. As we get to know God better, actually that will be observed in that we love him more and we want to express that love to him in prayer and praise. That doesn't just mean our singing, but it does mean our singing. You can always tell a worshipping church. You just feel it in the way that people sing. But it's in our praying. When we pray on our own, do we just come to God with a shopping list, things that we need or want? Or do we begin by thanking and praising and adoring him? As we live our lives, are we thinking, this life that I live, I live as worship, as a sacrifice to you. I want this life to be pleasing to you, not so that you'll be pleased with me, but so that you will be pleased. That's why we give gifts, isn't it, to people that we love. Have I said this here before? I I may have done. You know, if I give flowers to my wife, the cynic says, oh, you know, I I remember going into a a shop to buy a bunch of flowers for Sam, and um, the, the, the person behind the counter looked at me and said, what have you done? Now, that is one way of giving gifts, isn't it? is to try to sort of win someone's affection back, try and smooth things over. But I've got to tell you, generally, if I give Sam flowers, it's not because I've done something wrong and I want to make amends. It's because I love her. And I know that she enjoys receiving flowers, and I want to give her joy. 
That's what it means for Christian people to live a life of sacrifice, to live a life of worship. It's not so that somehow God will be pleased with you and on the last day the sort of balance will be in your favour. That's all dealt with. Jesus has done that. It's simply because we love to please the one who has given us everything. Which is why I wanted Revelation 1 verse 8 to be our verse for the year. Because more than anything, it is my desire that we will be a people who worship. Who get to know the glory of our King. And reflect it back to him in grateful thanks and praise. There is no higher calling for a human being than to be a worshipper. So shall we conclude by reading together Revelation 1 verse 8, our verse for the year. Recognising that what God reveals to us as he peels back the curtain is that here at the heart of reality is not some empty chair but the glorious God who is the centre of everything. So together, let us say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you that you are so unimaginably glorious. We thank you that if we could behold your beauty, we would want nothing else. We thank you that you are so good and so wonderful and that your love for us doesn't reflect any need in you. You don't need us, but wonderfully, you do love us and enough to pay the highest imaginable price for a relationship with us. Oh, Father, make us a worshipping people, a kingdom and priests to serve you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.